0: Amen. Our kids can make their way to the right. You can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. I think this is week 8. We are also still on page 917, if you're using the Pew Bible. Point number 1. You were separated from God and each other. Point number two, but now the cross has reconciled you to God and each other. Point number three, so then you are united together as the church. Before we journey through a particularly tough text this morning, a potentially tough text, I want to provide you with an on-ramp and some mile markers to look for as we read. The first half of Ephesians Ephesians 2 that we read last week and the second half of Ephesians 2 are parallel and complementary passages in many ways. In the first half, Paul deals with the new creation, the vertical aspect of new creation. In Christ, we are made alive as new creations and set free from our enslavement to sin, the world, and the devil. That's the vertical aspect of new creation. Here in the second half of Ephesians 2, Paul deals with the horizontal aspect of new creation. In Christ, we are together, corporately, made into a new people, so that whatever previously separated us from one another is likewise dealt with by the cross of Christ. The cross then has made you a new creation, but the cross has also created a new people, a collective, a kingdom, a family, a temple. This new people that we call the church. Second, this text is also structured in much the same way as the first part of Ephesians 2. Recall the structure of Ephesians, uh, the first half of Ephesians two, as it started off with that terrible, sobering news in verse one through three. In our pre-Christian state, we were dead, enslaved to sin, the, enslaved to sin, the world, and the devil. But then, remember that bad news turned on that beautiful conjunction. But God, he spoke of the gracious saving work of Christ. He then closed by applying that present implications in the life of the believer were created new as his work in order to walk out in the new life of Christ. This passage before us today, in the second half of Ephesians, proceeds with the same structure. You were separated, alienated, strangers, without hope, and without God. Bad, terrible, sobering news. But now... An equally beautiful conjunction, but now you're brought near, made one, reconciled to God and each other by the cross. That's verse 13 through 18. So then, the wrap-up, the implications, what it all means, so then we are citizens together in a new kingdom, members together in a new family, and living stones of the new temple. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are his body. And a final note before we read. This passage applies to us deeply. We've run the danger this morning of getting lost in the weeds. Okay, we hear words like circumcision and Gentiles and Israel, and we run the danger of thinking to ourselves that this is just some kind of like esoteric theological fodder of thinking that it's just some kind of like outdated squabble that has no bearing on us today, that's not the case, not if you're part of the people of God. For one, you yourself, outside of Christ, were the Gentile who was outside of the people of God that has been brought near by the cross of Christ. Further, we might not be divided into the same camps today, but we are tempted to division, nonetheless. We're tempted to isolation, nonetheless. And we need to hear this passage. We need to hear this passage's heavy, beautiful call to unity in Christ and apply that today to our corporate life together. So with those signposts in our mind, let's read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. May you grant us now understanding of this wordy and difficult passage By your spirit, may you illuminate our hearts and our minds to the great truth that our union with Christ then creates a union with the church. By your spirit, may you cause us to delight in what is already true about us. May you cause us to lay hold of what is already true about us corporately together as a body. Can you, Lord, empower, would you, Lord, empower me to preach this morning? And would you also empower us to listen well to your word, all of us? Father, comfort us where we need to be comforted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. But Lord, convict us where we need to be convicted. Lord, may you do all of this for your glory, for the furthering of your kingdom. And would you do that work in us right now? I pray that. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, it's a bit hard, it's a bit hard for us to fully understand the divide that existed between Jews and Gentiles. We get a glimpse of it and how often it comes up in the New Testament. We see it in Acts, we see it in Galatians, we see it in Romans. We see that there's a both a practical, cultural problem of two very separate groups coming together. But there's also a host of theological questions that are provoked by that. Paul is here in Ephesians writing as a Jew to a primarily Gentile audience, and he begins the passage with imploring his Ephesian hearers to call to mind all that they were, all that they were without in their pre-Christian state. First, it begins with a little bit of name-calling. Paul alludes to the way that the Jews insultingly refer to Gentiles. They, They call the Gentiles the uncircumcision, literally the foreskins. Paul himself, though, isn't endorsing this, but rather his words cut both ways. Take a look at it in verse 11 and 12. Paraphrasing the thought, Paul says, remember You Gentiles in the flesh, the so-called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, even though they only had the outward, in the flesh, human circumcision. He says to the Gentiles, you in the flesh were Gentiles. He says to the Jews in the same thing. They were in the flesh, just Jews with an outward circumcision. The Jews mocked them even though they had only an outward sign. Made in the flesh. Mark that because it's going to come back to us in verse 14. Now, even while Paul here alludes to the present insufficiency of the Jews' external covenant sign, it's not as though being part of the covenant people of God didn't have benefits. Israel, the Jews, were the recipients of God's covenant. We see God's covenant promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And then it's repeated, reiterated repeatedly throughout the book of Genesis. And then it's repeated throughout the whole Old Testament even. And the Jews were the ones that had this treasure, these promises. In Genesis chapter 12, we see it's four things. He will provide land. He will make them a great nation. They will enjoy a special relationship with God. And then through them, all nations will be blessed. Throughout Genesis, we see how God does indeed begin making them into a great nation. He multiplies them. He protects them. He preserves them. Then in Exodus and following up through Joshua, we see God providing land for his people. Also in Exodus and following, we see his special relationship with Israel. Most notable in that he provides them the law as a gracious gift to them. And throughout the Old Testament, we see how he is active in the corporate life of Israel in a special way that's not shared with all the other nations. But the basis of that special relationship of his favor on Israel is always the law. So kings, they're either good or bad, based on whether they lead the people in accordance with the law or whether they spurn the law and lead Israel after idols. And the prophets come, and as they speak, they speak words of judgment, but it's always indicting according to the law or comforting according to God's covenant promises. All along, though, the plan was for Israel to be a conduit of blessing to all nations as we see in Genesis 12 and then it's reiterated in chapter 18 and then again in 22 and then it's carried on to Isaac in chapter 26 and then on to Jacob in 28. The call on Israel was always to be a light for the nations. So God's intent is to graciously Not because of any merit on the part of Israel, but graciously use Israel for the nations. But particularly by the New Testament time, Israel had often received the grace of God without view to the overarching purpose, but rather they had twisted it as superiority and exclusion to the Gentiles around them, which is why we see this mocking here in our text. But that doesn't change the fact that the covenant was itself good. It doesn't change the fact that the Gentiles were previously outside of those great covenant promises. In summary, this is what Paul wants to remind the Gentile audience of in Ephesians 2:11 through 12. They were a people outside of God's covenant. Paul then notes five closely related blessings that they lacked while being outside of the covenant people of God. They were previously separated from Christ. They didn't have Jesus like they do now. And they, outside of the covenant promises of God, didn't share in the promise of a coming Messiah as Israel did. Next, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Israel was God's treasured people, and that wasn't changed by Israel's unfaithfulness. Rather, God remained faithful to them as a people, even in spite of it. And the Ephesian non-Jews were not a part of that people. They were a people with no home, not part of God's kingdom, non-citizens, sure, They may not have been cognizant of the fact that they were missing out. That's why Paul's unpacking it here for them. But despite whatever earthly citizenship they enjoyed, they were lacking the citizenship that mattered. They were outside of the people of God, alienated. Next, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. Though by the first century, it appeared to be very dark times for Israel as the people of God. By then, they had no land of their own, no self-governance, they're occupied by a foreign nation, but still the faithful Israelite, as few of those that there may have been left, the faithful Israelite, the faithful remnant could always count on God's faithfulness to his covenant and therefore to his people. They could trust in the promise of Messiah. They could wait and long for Isaiah nine, the one who would come, sit, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. They could know the promise of Isaiah 9, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Not the Gentile. Again, they didn't even know what they were missing out on. But still, they were missing out. Think about this. The God of the universe The creator of all had enacted his promised plan to rescue his creation. It's already underway. He's already setting apart a people for himself. He's already doing all of the things that he promised in the covenant. They didn't even know such a promise existed. Therefore, they had no hope. They lacked the sure bet light at the end of the tunnel. They lacked the promise made by a faithful God who has always kept his promises. So they had no hope. And it says they were without God in the world. Sure, they had many gods, but none of them the true and living God. Outside of God's covenant people, the Gentiles lacked all of this. They were separated, alienated, strangers without hope and without God. Church, listen you were likewise separated from God and from each other, apart from Christ. Our sin separated us from Christ, from the God who created us. But more than that, sin also wreaks horizontal havoc in all of our human relationships. It isolates the image bearer of God on an island. It rends relationships apart. It fractures families. It divides one demographic from another. It vandalizes community. It polarizes nations. God created the world, and it was good. He created humanity, and it was very good. And he made us to live in right relationship with him, worshiping him as our king, and then to live in a state of right relationship with one another, in a state of shalom, a state of flourishing with one another. But sin wrecks the vertical aspect of that, and it thereby wrecks the horizontal aspect of that as well. And this is terrible, sobering news. Not just for the first century Gentile, but for you and I in 2023 also. So then praise God, praise God that we have yet another beautiful conjunction in this text. Praise God that that's not the end of the story. Praise God that this horizontal predicament has been dealt with by the cross of Christ, who is our peace, who makes peace, and who proclaims peace to us all, those who were far off and those who were near. Verse verse 13. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. But now the cross has reconciled you to God and each other. Paul here alludes to Isaiah 57, verse 19. Isaiah says there, Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. He uses the Now, familiar phrase, in Christ Jesus. We've talked about that every week. It's just over and over in Ephesians. In Christ Jesus. By our union with Christ, this is accomplished. He says to the Gentile audience, you were far off. You were far away, alienated, outside the covenant, far off. But you've been brought near, and this was accomplished by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, we see the first of four uses of the word peace. Jesus is our peace, and he's, been, and he's made both Gentile and Jew one. He's united them. I told you to mark this. Those previously, in verse 11, those who were Gentiles in the flesh, and there were Jews in the flesh, but now all of their differences have been broken down in his flesh. In the flesh, in the flesh, doesn't matter anymore because we have Jesus's flesh. He accomplished it all in his flesh. The unity is accomplished by the cross of Christ who is our peace. Going on, he says the cross has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Here, Paul likely makes an allusion to a literal wall, a literal wall that separates, he he to makes an allusion to a literal wall to illustrate his broader point that all that separates Jew from Gentile is gone in Christ Jesus. The temple, the old temple, had a literal four and a half foot wall around the perimeter. It marked off the boundaries of how far the foreigner could go into the temple around listen to this around the wall on each post were posted signs that read quote no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death there's a wall gentiles can only go so far acts 21 remember remember paul uh, why does he get arrested to begin with? What do, they, what do they accuse him of? He was falsely accused of taking a Gentile, which is actually an Ephesian trof, trophimus, he was accused, falsely accused, of taking him past that wall into the temple. But here Paul says that the wall that separates Jew and Gentile means nothing anymore because of the cross of Christ. Likewise, all the purity laws that separated Jew from Gentile, those are no longer in effect. They mean nothing anymore because of the cross of Christ. Jesus has reconciled both to God in one body through the cross. It's through the cross. Note how this whole section about our unity together as a church is just dripping with the blood of Jesus. It's in his body that we are made one body. As one old preacher said, Christ in his death was slain, but the slain was a slayer too. In his death, Jesus killed the hostility separating Gentile from Jew. So that now, in verse 17, he proclaims to those who were far off, the Gentiles in the flesh, far away, peace. Peace by the cross. And to those who were near, in the covenant family, the Jews in the flesh, peace by the cross. See the repetition throughout this section, the repetition of the word both. No longer is there two separate groups. Now there is one peace, one gospel, one access. Verse. 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Access to the Father, accomplished by the Son and applied through the Spirit. Gentile and Jew alike are now on equal footing at the foot of the cross. All that divides, no longer relevant. All that previously separated is done away with. In Christ, we see the coming to fruition of the Father's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Church, hear this and hear it well. Before we go on to glory, glory in the beautiful outcome of the one united people of God, Remember that our union together is not a cheap union. It's a costly union that cost God the life of his own son. Our union with each other, all these different people who gather in here together, our union with each other was bought for us at the cross of Christ. Consider that as you consider community. Think on that the next time that you're tempted to invent for yourself some individualistic, unattached way of walking with Jesus. To be united to Christ is to be united to his body, the church. And both were paid for by his blood. Church, you dare, we dare not trifle with a blessing that was bought at so precious a price. We dare not neglect such a gift. We dare not act like the body in the church, body life in the church is an infringement on our schedule. We dare not act as though we reserve the right to harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in relationships where he has accomplished and proclaimed peace. We dare not divide what he has united by his blood remember also that it's Christ that unites us all it's Christ that unites us all together despite all the many differences we have in this room every sunday as we gather together it's jesus that brings us all together from wherever you're from however old you're, you are Whatever you're into, whatever your hobbies are, whatever your political divide, whatever, all of that, it's Jesus that brings us together. You were separated from God and each other, but the cross has reconciled you to God and to each other. So then, you are united together as the church. Note how Paul does the same thing here that he did in the first half of Ephesians 2. We saw last week how Paul opened with the problem, and then he beautifully flips that in the end. So we see the language of the problem in the the beginning, and then in the end, he beautifully flips it as he closes the section. Here he does the same as he employs dramatic reversal of language to flip this corporate problem on its head. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Gentile audience that Paul's writing to, they're strangers and aliens, no more. They're separated, no more. They lack his word, no more. They're without God, no more. They're two separate groups, no more. They've been united in one kingdom, one family one new temple so much so elsewhere first corinthians 10 paul can talk about three different kinds of people he talks about jews he talks about greeks and he talks about the church of god there's a new kind of people it's the church of god there are those who are jews in the flesh there are those who are greeks in the flesh and then there's the people of god Jew and Gentile alike are now fellow citizens with the saints of a new kingdom. By our union with Christ, who was raised from the dead and seated at his right hand in the heavenly places, we have all together been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places so that, as we said last week, we now have one foot in the kingdom as we worship King Jesus, who's reigning now, even while his full consummation, the full coming to fruition of his new kingdom is not yet. We are all together citizens of that now and not yet kingdom. Today, there's one people of God, the church. There's one access to that kingdom only through faith in Jesus. And listen, church. This is not an ethical myth made up to inspire new behavior. This is not Aesop's fables, okay? This isn't like a nice-sounding story where you're like, hey, think of yourselves as a new kingdom, It's not even merely metaphor. No, the eyes of faith require us to look upon the truth of Scripture and confess that this is what we actually are. Really and truly, we are part of a new humanity, part of a new global kingdom of all those around the world who name the name of Christ. We actually are really and truly citizens together in a new kingdom. Look around, it can be hard to see. But faith requires us to see that's what we actually are. So the call to kingdom living is a call to turn from the fiction that we see all around us and live in light of how things really are. I think this has far, far reaching implications. If you would just go away and ponder a bit, what would it look like to really look upon the church, both here locally and also globally, what would it look like to look upon the church as the real and true kingdom that cannot be shaken and will last eternally long after this earth has passed away? What would that mean? Next, Jew and Gentile alike are now members of the household of God. They are members together of a new family. In Christ, we have all been adopted into God's family as full heirs. As we sing sometimes, once an enemy now seated at his table. The most common New Testament relational descriptor, you know this, the most common New Testament relational descriptor for Christians is brothers and sisters. So as others have said, we don't believe that the church is like a family. We believe that the church is a family. In his excellent book, it's out of print, okay, 1978, they should bring it back to print. It's probably the best book on biblical community that I've read. I've read more than one, let's say it that way. Uh, Bruce Milne says it this way. Putting this another way, the call to live together in love and harmony in Christ is a call to become in practice and in outward life what we already are by virtue of our share in Christ's victory. It is a call to make real in our Christian relationships that which God has already given us. Churches, members of the household of God, we're not called to be a member in name only. This is not an honorific title. As members of God's family, the calling on us is to actually walk out in that identity as family. If you're a member of this church, don't be a member in name only. Faithfulness to the New Testament vision of the church delightfully, hear me, delightfully demands that you have a real and meaningful active participation in the body life that you actually meaningfully engage in real relationships beyond the Sunday morning gathering? Church member, have you seen or talked to anyone from your church family since last Sunday morning? Is that your regular pattern, that you come here on Sundays, you check the box for church attendance? And then you come back next sunday and you see people again listen brother sister if that's you i want you to hear me we are very glad you're here we're very glad that you're continuing to come here on sundays but you've bought you've bought the culture's definition of church as some sunday morning event and you're missing out on the absolutely necessary blessings of being truly engaged in the body Don't be a member in name only of this church. Don't be a member in name only of your base group. Like you're on the roll, but you're not really engaged in participating. Plug in so that you can both reap the full benefits of church as family, but also serve. You can both serve and you can be served you've been with us for a bit and you find yourself on the fringes of our community, here's my encouragement. Take a step this week to truly, truly invest some time into deeper relationships with your fellow brothers and sisters. God has not saved you to walk alone. He's not saved you to just you and your family walk through the Christian life together He saved you into a broader church family. Church, hear me. I think I've said that more than once this morning. Hear me. The biblical vision of the church as family grates profoundly, profoundly against our culture of individualism. But, Make no mistake, this is a call to cast off individualism for something far better. Every culture has areas of its life that will more profoundly grate against the biblical faithfulness. Our brothers and sisters from non-Western cultures will likely find it much easier to walk out in the communal life that the Bible gives us. But when when the scriptures grate against our culture, you have two options. You have two options. You can accommodate to the culture, thereby taking the Bible and making it come underneath the culture. Or you can go against the current of the culture while we take the Bible and put it over on top of the culture as we submit our culture's norms and values underneath the authority of Scripture. I think, I think you know one of those is faithful, right? But here's the thing, okay? Here's the insidious thing, the sneaky thing about cultural accommodation is that most often we don't know when we're doing it. Going upstream against the flow of the culture around us is going to take a great deal of effort, a great deal of intentionality, because the water that we're swimming in all week long is going one direction, and that's what's being pushed on us all week long. To belabor a point that I think is worth belaboring, I feared this. Many of us would well recognize cultural accommodation in other areas okay take take sexual ethics for example you know you know that you can't take the culture's definition of that and make the bible come underneath that you know that we need to be just as on guard when it comes to our participation in the body we need just as on guard when it comes to individualism versus church as family. God's beautiful biblical vision for the church must not be sold out to our culture. As the united people of God, we are citizens of a new kingdom, members together of a new family, and I love this. Paul's third way of describing our unity as a new people is to say that we are the new temple of God. Verse 21, we are a holy temple in the Lord. Starting in verse 20, Paul starts transitioning to using this new temple language to describe the church. He says Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the first and most important stone that all the other stones are set to. He then says that we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That is the foundation, the foundation is Word, ministry, the gospel proclamation of the New Testament apostles and prophets. Uh, I would take here just a little bit of explanation, and then we can come back and see the point. I take apostles here to refer to those special few apostles like Paul who are responsible for establishing Christ's church through the gospel teaching of the New Covenant. Okay? That's what apostles are here. They're the ones that are teaching the New covenant. Second to that, I take prophets here to refer to the New Testament prophets who shared in the word ministry. Some would want to see in this, like Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, but I don't think that that's what's in view here. For one, if you were going to say if, were, if that's what he meant, he would have said. Prophets and apostles, and he would have done it in that order chronologically. Second, we can see that Paul mentions apostles and prophets again in chapter 3, verse 5, and then he also mentions them again in chapter 4, verse 11. So I think what he's referring to by saying that we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets is the word ministry of the apostles and the word ministry of prophets like Agabus that we see in Acts, who played an important part in the church's ministry of the word. So back up to sum it up. From the beginning section, the Gentiles were strangers to the covenants of promise. Remember, they were strangers. They didn't have the covenant. They didn't have the word. They didn't possess his word. But now, Jew and Gentile alike, together as the church, they possess his word together through the teaching of the apostles and prophets. Do you see the flip on its head? So Jesus is the cornerstone that holds the whole temple together. From there, the new temple is founded on word, ministry, gospel, proclamation, truth. And then... Jesus is the cornerstone, teaching as the foundation, then we're all parts of that structure. To borrow from 1 Peter, he says that we're living stones. We are together the new temple of God. He's not talking about a building. Together we are, as a people, the dwelling place for God by his spirit. Church, there's such a richness to the biblical theology that we could unpack here. There's such a richness to that, what's all that's going on in 20 through 22, that can help you hold the whole storyline of the Bible together. In Eden, the whole world was the temple, as the presence of God dwelled and no sacrifice for sin was needed. In the tabernacle, the presence of God dwelled, and there were temporary sacrifices for sins that were made. In the old temple, the presence of God dwelled, and again, temporary sacrifices for sin were made. But then, Jesus came, right? John chapter 1, Jesus came. The word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled, dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus claimed to be the new temple. Remember what he said in John chapter 2? Destroy this temple. Talking about himself. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. During his time on earth, he was the place where the presence of God dwelled, and he was the one who would make sacrifice for sin once and for all. So Colossians 1 for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus came to earth to, tabernacle, to, to, to dwell, to tabernacle among us, living the perfect life that we could not live and then making once for all sacrifice for our sin on the cross. And then he rose, okay, He rose like he said he would. And what does he say in John chapter 20 when when he's talking to his disciples after he's raised? He looks to his disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Before the the presence of God dwelled in him, and then upon his resurrection, now the presence of God is going to dwell in his followers. And he gave them the task of going and pronouncing forgiveness of sins that's already been accomplished then by the cross. So, church, we are the temple. We are the dwelling place for God. We are vitally important, as important as the tabernacle, as important as the Old Testament temple. You can see it in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Peter 2. The church, the people, the family of God in us collectively, we are where the presence of God now dwells. And then Revelation 21, where we are the place where the presence of God now dwells until Revelation 21, when then finally and perfectly in the new heaven and the new earth, God will again dwell with his people. Twenty-one, twenty-two 22 says, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. For now we, the church global, but expressed locally, we are the dwelling place for God, we are his temple. Look with me to verse 21. As his temple, the church is not a static building. Rather, as a living temple, we are to be ever-growing and we are to be continuously built up. 21 says, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is a theme that gets picked up again in chapter 4, especially in verses 15 and 16. It uses the same language of joined together and growing and built, but there it, re- it returns to, it uses the picture of a body. Okay, he says, rather, this is what he says, Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body Joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Church, we say it. We say it here. We're going to keep saying it. Everyone needs to be growing and helping others grow. It's essential if we're going to be a healthy church In a healthy church, this is what we're getting to in a couple couple weeks, months. Uh, If we are going to be a healthy church, then leaders equip members, and members, all members, are involved in the mutual building up of one another. Every member has a role to play in discipling each other to greater Christlikeness. We have discipleship structures in place, we have base groups, we have Bible studies, we have discipleship classes. Those are important, we're always going to have those. But as important as those is having a culture where every member is involved in the ongoing building up of one another in Christ. You have a part to play in your sister growing in sound doctrine. You have a part to play in helping your brother keep his hope set on the things that are above. We all have a part to play in helping one another take the next step in grace. Church, if the Lord has gifted you, if the Lord has gifted you with good discipleship, like if you've in your life had people pour into you If by God's grace, you've like had people give you sound doctrine, spend time with you, walk alongside you and help you to grow in grace, don't you dare sit on that without pouring into others. Don't you bury in the ground a gift that God gave you to steward and multiply. I say that for you, okay? Not at you. I say that for you because you're going to stand before God one day and you're going to give an account for what you've been entrusted with. And what are you going to say? Lord, they never asked. No one ever asked for my help. They didn't need to ask. He asked you to help them. You go find someone to pour into. You go find someone in our body that you can help grow in Jesus. On the flip side, it's my observation that many of us would stand ready to help. We'd be like, yeah, we'll meet, let's have coffee, come over, like I'll teach you how to read the Bible, whatever. Like many of us would just stand ready to help. But apparently, in the church, there's just not that many people who need help. Ask around in your base group tonight, like truly. Is there anyone here who would benefit from meeting with someone else in order for them to help you grow in Jesus? I'd be surprised if it's not a little bit of crickets, okay? Either, this is what happens when we talk about discipleship, when we talk about the need for people to pour into one another. Either we're all just healthy and cruising along just fine, Or some of us just need to get better at acknowledging that we need help. Here's my challenge to every one of us answer these two questions and answer them. Let the answers of these questions be someone outside of your family. You helping your family grow is a given, okay? But answer them with someone outside of your family. Who is helping you grow? Who is helping you grow in grace? And who are you helping to grow? If that's hard for you to answer then please do something about it. If you're here today if you're here today and you're not a believer we're we're glad you're here. We've all started in the same place that you sit now and if you're if that's you here today then let me just say we would love to talk to, with you more about this. We would love to help you grow in Christ. We would love to talk with you about the gospel. But if you are here today and you are a Christian, then remember this. You were separated from God and from each other. But now the cross has reconciled you to God and to each other. So then you are united together as the church. And I close with this. Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, he's repeatedly commending them for something, and then he tells them, I hope you would grow out in that more and more. I'm encouraged by so much that's going on early in the life of Antioch Church. Well, let's continue to grow in this more and more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the precious gift of all the precious gifts of salvation. God, we do thank you that because of your cross, you have saved us, and Lord, we thank you for the fact that when you save us, you don't save us to walk through the Christian life on our own, but rather you call us to do that together as one body in one family. Father, I pray that you would be with each of us here that you would prompt us by your spirit to know how we can help to build one another up in the body. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know how we ourselves need help from other people in the body. And Lord, I pray that you grant us such conviction that we could actually take steps this week of obedience to apply and to better live out and walk out in your vision for your church, God. But protect us from selling that short for some other vision. God, we thank you for all that you've done so far in our life together as a church. And Lord, we pray that you would do that more and more and always for your glory, Lord. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.